The Tough Love and Second Chances podcast is written and produced by Tony Bennett on behalf of Edgar and reveals remarkable stories of those who refuse to be defined by their disability. The power of the human spirit shines through with examples of how hope, courage, and the opportunity to express oneself through the game of golf makes for a combination that can improve and even save lives. The words, I need to get my life back, came deep from within the soul of Kenny Bonds. The flamboyant American who hails from New Jersey is chiseled from a different kind of rock. Get past the mohawk, beyond the confident walk and cut through the hard man exterior and you will find a man who has experienced the pressure of disease, felt the heat of addiction and who has emerged on the other side, shining like a precious diamond. Today, Kenny finds his life fulfilling as he works through the process of becoming the best version of himself. It is said that without the valleys there can never be peaks, and Kenny needs those highs. It's in his character. Kenny says that life deals you the cards and you've got to play them. Sure, there are times when you want to fold, but if you keep the hand, then eventually you can trade a few. Kenny's story is one of turning his original cards into aces. Please enjoy my conversation with Kenny Bonds. Well, I'm here with Kenny Bonds from uh, Florida. And Kenny, it's fantastic to have you here down in Australia at the Emirates Australian Open. And you're going to play in the All Abilities Championship. So what does that feel like? Oh, it's great. I can't wait to get it up going, getting uh, into it tomorrow. Looking forward to it. Tell me, I mean, you've got a fascinating story. And, I mean, clearly one of the things that we're really interested in doing is trying to tell the players' stories so that everybody understands who you are, how you got to where you are, and then, you know, some of the aspirations that you've got for the future. So maybe if you can give me a little bit of background, because you're one of the very best disabled players in the United States. Thank you're you. You're high up in the ranking, the, the, the gross ranking, which we'll talk about as well. Okay. Um, but tell me... How did you get into disabled golf in the first place? Um, I got Ewing sarcoma at 19, and I went through a regimen of chemotherapy, and then they took my tibia out, proximal tibia out of my leg, put in a cadaver bone, and I started coaching little kids in soccer, and a kid kicked me in my shin and broke it. So they had to replace it because it is a cadaver bone. So when they replaced it, um, my leg was so swollen they couldn't close it, so they cut my femur head off my top of my knee and the tibia head off the lower part of the allograft and gave me a total knee replacement with a tibia allograft. They last 15 years, supposedly. I went through six and nine years because I kept breaking them. I was young, I was hard on it, and I learned that lesson the hard way. But every time I went through an operation, I started to take pain pills. And I started out with three a day. And for six years, I took 80 Vicodin, which was 60, there were 800 milligram pills. So 64,000 milligrams a day uh, I took along with a lot of alcohol and some other things. And I woke up one day, I was running a printing company and I woke up one day and said, I need my life back. And I decided to take my leg off to stop the pills and the addiction. And that's what I did. And had my surgeon take it off. It was a 15 minute operation. And uh, I woke up with that lot of drip in my arm and I ripped it out and my rehab started that day and it went on for three and a half months till I got out of the fog. 
but I was in a really dark place. I mean, my next step probably was heroin, and you don't come back from that drug. I would have been, I probably would have been dead within six months. And I decided, you know, to get my life back, and that's what I did. Well, there's a whole bunch of things I'd like to dig into there, if I may. And, no problem. Start off with, so the diagnosis that you got when you were 19, so before that, were you, uh, my guess is that you were pretty active because, I mean, you're, you're pretty active right now. So yeah, I've like, played That's every, in your DNA, right? Yeah, I, I've always had a, some type of ball in my hand. I mean, I've played sports since I've been, you know, I could walk. And golf wasn't a priority of mine. It was like baseball. Soccer was my big, big game. Um, I was always too small to play football. But, uh, yeah, I played everything, basketball. And then as my leg – I got into golf later um, – I was playing when I got diagnosed, but not to the level I am now. But now I play with a clear head. I'm not in a fog anymore, so I enjoy the game. I enjoy being outside. I like seeing the sun, the birds chirping, you know, the animals. You know, I've come a long way. See, so at 19 years of age, you get this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Did you understand what the diagnosis meant at that time? No, I did not because no one I knew had cancer. Um, I knew what it I, – I knew what the – I called it the C word, you know, because, you know, you mentioned that word. It was it, it goes along with death at that point. I mean, I was older to get that. That that cancer is found in younger children, um, like adolescents. Me being 19 and also being a type 1 diabetic, my chances weren't too good. Um, but again, I'm a fighter, so I said, let's go. And we went after it, and it worked. I mean, the chemotherapy killed it it almost killed me but it killed it and you know we went went on from there so then you've gone through that stage mm -hmm. then you said you, you got into coaching soccer yeah I always played my whole life so I kind of I, I wanted to keep doing it but I couldn't play so I coached little kids six seven eight year olds and that's where the you know I was clowning around thinking I could still play and the kid went to kick the ball missed it and kicked me in the shin Right. And, you know, it swelled up and it leg changed color. So I called my surgeon in New York City. And he sent me for an x-ray and the bone was cracked. So he said, you have to come back in because it's a, it's a cadaver bone. It won't heal itself. So I went back in and it, the surgeries were between 13 and 18 hours, depending on how bad it was. You'll have had loads and loads of general anesthetics, mm -hmm. local anesthetics as you're going through this process, I'm sure. Yep. And each one of those has a, a toll on the body. Sure it does. So how was that process? Because you're going through all of these operations. I had seven major surgeries. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, anesthesia wasn't as hard as the pain meds. Anesthesia knocks you out. But a lot of mine... A lot of mine were done locally. They put a blocker in because I'm a waist down. Right. So they, I was awake for most of them, so to speak. Um, they give you medicine and you fade in and out. But when I would come out of it, the pain that I was in, they would hook me up to dilated drips and stuff like that. And that's where the addiction started because those drugs, my body loved them. Right. And then you just can't stop it. You know what I mean? Over a period of time with the pain I was in, you need more pills, you need more pills, you need more alcohol. So it becomes like a concoction that, you know, you learn to how it works. I mean, I was 12, I get in in the morning and get out of bed, 800 milligram pills. I chew them like candy. I wouldn't even take water with them. I would chew them because then the time release capsules on them. It, it's a hard pill, but it's got a time release on it. I would chew them so it would get in my body quickly. And then that would be my way out of bed. 
and then to bring it back, you'd have a couple cocktails, you know, beers a couple hours later. But, I mean, you get up at 7 in the morning, you start at 6 o'clock in the morning, you're drinking at 10 o'clock. I mean, it, it becomes a vicious cycle. And that's the word, isn't it? Vicious. Vicious. If there was a stronger word, I would use it because you don't realize what it does to you at that point. And it, it, it is brutal. And what about family at that time? How was the family dealing with this? Because they obviously can see what's going on. Uh, I hit it very, I hit it very well. Um, my ex-wife, it cost me part of my marriage. It cost me my marriage, but um, amongst other things. I mean, when you start taking the amount of pills I was taking, it's, it's, if people don't notice it, you're good at what you did. And as an, as an addict, you have to be. Um, even my doctor's getting script prescriptions. I mean, I was getting 500 pills you know, every week, I mean, because I was going through that many. Um, but you learn, I mean, it, you learn how to finagle it and what to do. So, I mean, even even my ex-wife, she knew what I was doing, but not to the extent that I was doing it because I wasn't with her 24-7. Neither was my family. I had my own house. I had my own life at that point. My friends I played golf with, they, you know, they always said to me, man, you're a lot of fun to play with, but you can be a nightmare too. Because if I had a bad day and I was in pain, I took a lot of pills. You never knew what you got with me. I was like the X factor. That's why I love where I am now. And I made a change when I take my, took my leg off to stop doing that. But I've also changed a lot about myself. And I enjoy things now where I never did. You know, I took a lot for granted in life. And I won't do that ever again. Clearly, this is a growing epidemic as well. Yeah. And it's not purely for, for amputations. It's for many different, uh, many different problems. Yeah. And it seems like there's a prevalence of pain meds, antidepressants, anti, yeah. you know, all these kind of these kind of medications that are really very addictive. I look at like when I was a kid, none of my friends were on ADHD medicine. I mean, now it just seems like if they classify people now with these problems, and how do you fix it? You just give them pills. That doesn't work. I mean, it's it's a bad epidemic. I had an opioid problem before the opioid problem happened in the U.S. Before I had a name. Yeah, but I was I was a major addict back then. I mean, and I've come a long way. And you know, people will tell me, you know, you did this without any help, and I did it on my own. But that's that's me. Not many people are built like I am. Yeah. And I made a decision, and I stuck to it, and I won't. I mean, I took my leg off. I've had friends take pills in front of me, which that doesn't bother me. I'll get mad at them for taking it, but they're like, does it bother you? And I'm like, no, because I did this to save my life. There's no way I'm going back to, to doing any of that. So so you said that you had, so you had an elective amputation. Mm -hmm. So at some point you made that decision. Yep. How hard was that decision? How easy was e that decision? Easiest decision I ever made in my life because it gave me my life back. Right, but you didn't know that at the time. No, you, you maybe but, suspected it would, but you didn't. Know but that at that so. time, when I made that decision, it was to save my life. Right. The benefits happened after that, but it was to save my life because in the next six months, I probably would have been long gone. Okay, so you make the decision. You go in. You, you said it was a fifteen-minute surgery. Job done. You wake up. You've got a, a needle in your arm. Yep. And you rip it out. Rip that's, it out. They're the words that you said. Just rip it out. Tore it out. Yep. And seems to me that's kind of part of your character. You yeah. just sort of say, okay, look, this is it. Yeah. How it goes, and the nurse came in in the, in the emergency room in the recovery room, and she was like, "We got to put that back in the pain you're going to be in." They are just taking my leg off, and I said to her, "I'll deal with the pain." Within an hour and a half, I mean, I was in a lot of pain, excruciating pain. Like you can't put on a scale of one to ten, but that's how my mind works with things. I'm like, "I'll deal with it," because I know, you know, 
I'll get through this. Every day, I have a saying, like, every day that passes is one less day i got to go through it. I've built my life on that. Um, so when I started to go through that, I mean, you get the shakes, the sweats, the, I mean, you, everything. You know, you throw up. It was, it was bad. But it was three and a half months of excruciating torture. And then one day I woke up and the shakes stopped and, you know, the sweating stopped and I could see focus a lot clearer. Because when you're going through that, I had about, I'll say, about three months into it, I got a, a deep tissue massage. And the woman that did it came to my house. And when she was done, she's like, your whole body is crystallized. Your muscles are all crystallized from the amount of pain pills you took. She goes, when you get up off of this table, you better be careful because it's going to release all the stuff back into your body. And as soon as I got up off the table, I took two steps on my crutches and threw up everywhere because all that stuff had come out. Of, and I went through that, you know, for a good couple of weeks of them working on me and getting everything out and drinking a ton of water when they would do it to get everything out of my body. And it was it was a road, but, it you know, it worked. Did you have anybody that was helping you through that? Nope. Did it all on my own. I mean, I had, my family knew, but they didn't, you know, I had a, actually, I bought a dog. Um, his name was Maximus. He was a Rottweiler. And the reason I bought him is because you got to exercise him. Right. So when I got my prosthetic leg, I bought the dog and we walked a mile every day for 11 years. And that, I learned how to walk again with him and do a lot of stuff. And yeah. So Max took a lot of the pain. He did. He took a lot he of... He, he, he never few, left my side. And he sh you shouted at him a few times, I guess. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So three and a half months into the road, things are beginning to clear up a little bit. Mm -hmm. The fog started to, to kind of dissipate a little bit. Yep. So what does the next period look like for you, Kenny? Well, I thought when I did this that I would put, get a prosthetic leg, put it on and start my life. It didn't work like that because when they... My, my thigh, when they took it off, was probably the size of my forearm. It was a, it was a bone wrapped in skin because um, it was so atrophied. So when they took my leg off, it was probably just almost the size of my waist. That's how swollen it got. And then you go through the shrinking, the swelling, the shrinking, the swelling. And I didn't, I didn't know that. And um, it's Sorry, did you not know that because they didn't tell you that? Or did you not know that because you didn't listen to that? Or you couldn't hear it because of the fog? Um, I probably chose not to listen to it right. when they did it because I just I, I had in my mind how it was going to work, not knowing of how a prosthetic actually, what the process is you have to go through. So it took about three years for me to learn how to walk again and the right way. And I still limp at times, but I don't. I'm not in any pain now when I put my left leg down. My pelvis was off an inch and a half when they took my leg off. When I got fit for the prosthetic, tilted inch and a half. Yeah. Because that's how, when I would step on my left leg, I would hop to get off it. That's how much pain I was in. And it, it messed my whole body up. So that process then to get all of that kind of balanced out, this would have taken, that was three years. Yes. Okay. And that looked like rehabilitation exercises, yep. therapy. Driving, I would drive to, the guy that I was going to in, in uh, Long Island, I would drive to him three times a week. And they would give me rehab. They would, you know, I had the temporary prosthetic and they would monitor it. And, you know, they gave me the shrinker to wear um, on the leg to shape, you know, the stump. So, yeah, I did that for about a year and it was it was a pain in the neck. At what point did golf start to think to, to start to appear and how? Why? Why? Why golf? 
Well, I always played golf, but then they told me, I mean, I, I had wreaked havoc on the leg I had. And now that I have a prosthetic, it's like, what can I do? I, I can't run because you have to wear a running leg. So I'm like, sports are going to be out. I mean, I can stand and throw a football. I can shoot baskets. I can play catch with a baseball. But I can't play. I can't, you know, run. Nor do I want to at this point right. in my life. But even back then. So um, I was always decent at golf. I mean, at this point in my life, when I took my leg off, I was 34. I had played in a lot of state events with my leg. I mean, I was the first one to use a cart in New Jersey because they let me have that because of Casey Martin rule. And, um, you know, I was playing at a good, you know, pace, but I was always cracked out. You know, I was always high. And I didn't respect the game. I didn't respect the guys I played with. I didn't respect myself. So when I took the leg off, a light kind of went on, and I started to respect a lot of things. And then finally... You know, he gave me my real prosthetic, and I went out and I shot 90. I don't ever think, I never shot in the 90s. He gave me a temporary prosthetic, and I went out. I was probably a two handicap at the time when I took my leg off. I went out and I shot 90, and I drove, I called him up. This was in the morning on like a Thursday. I drove back into Long Island, and I threw the leg at him, and I was like, fix it, because I don't shoot 90. And they did some tweaks to it, gave it back to me. I went home on Friday. I shot 92. I called him back up. He's like, just be patient, and that's the word they used. Don't get frustrated. Be patient. And that's what I tell all new amputees. Trust the process. You know, and again, I, I am the type of person that wants instantaneous results. I've always been like that. So put this leg on. I mean, I expect to go back out and shoot scratch golf. I, and it took me it took me a couple months, and I put some time in and, and effort in it. You learn undulated lies now are a lot differently. Downhill lies, I mean, it's a lot harder. Sand traps are a lot harder. But you adapt to it, and I've learned now over the years. And you know, finally, probably a year and a half after that, I started to play real good golf again. And then it's just gotten better and better and better and better since then. And now I'm, I'm a professional, so you know, it's it's my job. When I actually took my leg off, I didn't know what to do. My balance was all messed up, so I did go to uh, a coach in New Jersey, Brent Stewart, <laughs> who's been my guy, you know, forever until I moved to Florida. So he helped me with it, and we, you know, we did a lot of work on my game. So now tell me a little bit about your journey into disabled golf, because clearly beforehand you were playing regular golf. And right. I, I put that in inverted commas, because all golf is regular golf, but right. you played regular golf, and then at some point you found disabled golf. I asked my, my prosthetist, um, I asked him, you know, who's the best amputee golfer? And he gave me a name. So I started to research and I found Eastern Regional Golf Association and I called Bob Buck and he's like, you got to come out and play. Now, the reason I got into this, and this is the honest truth, is I wanted to go see how these guys walked around a golf course. So I went with my dad, first tournament, and uh, he was bummed out when I took my leg off. He didn't talk to me for two months because he was very upset because I was the athlete of the family. And now I just lost my leg, you know, and he didn't know what to expect. So we go to this tournament, and he knows my background to a point. And uh, it was like a booze fest. I mean, these guys, that's how they deal. There's a lot of demons out there, you know. And he's like, I don't want you playing in this because he's, I'm like, I, I'm not going to drink. You know what I mean? I can have a beer or two with him when I'm done, but not to the extent I ever I was doing. But I watched these guys walk around the golf course, how they hit shots, how they, you know, walk down hills and a lot of them were below the knee but it's still the same thing but the best thing i learned is it's like a peer group and that's what i love about it 
when you're done playing, you sit around a table and it's like, man, I got this cyst on the outside of my leg. I don't know how I got it. Somebody's had it. And then you got to use this for it. You know, you got to put this on it. You got to clean this. And, you know, you, you got to, so you learn. And that's, I'm the guy, when I got there, I was, I was a, just an info sponge. Give me everything you got. So it's like a community. Yes. And, and now I'm the guy that these younger guys are coming up to and say, listen, I got this and I can tell them. And it's, it's awesome. I, I love that fact about it. But I started to play in these tournaments, and then I realized I was winning them. And I'm like, I'm not even that good yet. And I started to win a lot of them. And then it just became like, you know, let's do it. I want to play as much as I can. I want to. I don't like playing against amputees, honestly, because I want the I want the higher scale. And like Chad is a great. I love playing against Chad. He's a great golfer. Um, Shane's a great golfer. Jeff is a great golfer. So there's some. This is a good talent pool here. But like most amputee tournaments or disabled tournaments now the talent level isn't as strong as it is in like a state event, right. you know, where I'm the outcast because I have this. Right. But I don't think of myself as an amputee or a disabled player. I'm just, I want to beat everybody. Yeah. And you, have you seen the level change a little bit over the years? Because clearly when you first got started, there'd be very few. Yes. Uh, it, it, it's definitely changed on a, on a level of, the, you see the, the younger kids coming up and the effort they're putting into it where that was really never there. Right. Um, it was always a good organization, but now you're getting guys that are really good, solid players, professionals, and it's 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 leaps and bounds where it's coming to. Would it be fair to say that it's maybe changed a little bit? And this is what we see, certainly in Europe, that it's changed from lots of different societies now into being truly competitive at the top end. And that the middle end, at the middle and the bottom end, it's still very much a nice society of people, yes. a nice community of people. Um, that just go and have fun and go and enjoy just like, you know, every golf club has got a, a group of players that just like to go play. Right. But then you've also got a group of players that like to compete. So you've got the kind of participation and then you've got the, yep. the competitive end as well. Yeah, and I almost feel bad for the guys on the lower half, you know, because a guy with missing an arm is not going to compete against me. I mean, you have Jesse in Canada, who's an exception to the rule, and there's always going to be them. But most guys that are missing an arm or, you know, missing a leg and they, they're not – or they don't hit balls like I do or Chad does. They don't practice and play like we do. They don't have a chance, and I feel bad for that. But I made the decision to turn professional and, and start practicing and, and playing every day. And not many people can do that. And, you know, that's where I separate myself, as does Chad, to, you know, to get to a level. And if you want to get to a level like this, you want to be top six in the world, you don't do that by just hitting occasional balls once a week or playing once every two weeks doesn't happen yeah. you got to put the time and the effort in and then you get the results so you, at some point you made the decision to turn pro and what was the driver for you to say well no actually I want to really do this now at a high level well I knew I was going to the Champions Tour qualifying school this two weeks ago and um, my coach actually had told me you know maybe play as an amateur because you can play in amateur and pro events even as an amateur which is true but I played in the Florida Open, and I thought I had a chance to win the local qualifying. Um, and I was playing really good at the point, and it was like eight grand. So I wanted to, I turned pro to, to do that and see. I finished one spot ahead of the money, but it was you know I, I learned a lot there too. That's what I'm. I'm like a sponge, like I said. Like I'm learning so much about myself and my game, and you know how to how to play the proper way. Yeah, I was always a gamble guy. I've always been like that. Like, you can't get to the, I can get there. I'm in the trees. I can get it under that branch. Hits the branch and goes back in the woods. Now I'm making triple instead of bogey. You know what I mean? Now I've learned to punch out, take my medicine, and, 
you know. So there's, there's a few things that you've, you've said here that really interest me. So you've talked about the change that you, of you as a person. Mm. You've talked about respect. Uh, so I, I assume that's respect for yourself and respect for the other people and respect for the game, I guess. But I'm going to dig into that. It starts with myself, yes. And then you talk about trusting the process as well. So those three things are all really interesting to me. So what, what kind of changes have you seen in yourself? Well, when I got divorced, um, when I walked out of the courtroom, my ex-wife said to me, you need to change yourself if you're ever going to meet anybody. And I didn't know what she meant by that. So before I moved to Florida, I went out to dinner with a couple of my friends. And I said to them, do you think I'm, I'm, I'm tough? Do you think I'm like, and I mean that in a bad way, not like, a, you know, and I said, do you think that, you know, sometimes I'm a nightmare? No one would say anything because I would I would attack at that point. You know what I mean? So and then one finally one of my friends was like, yeah, you, you're very rough. We all have families. You know, we go out with you. We end up we could end up in jail. And and it, it hit home with me. You know, what I mean, I, I realized now that she was right. And I took a step back and I do this with everything now where I look at myself. I look at the situation from the outside. And it's helped me a lot. So I went, I went to see it, you know, for help. And I figured out a lot about myself. And I, she broke me down. The woman broke me down like an onion. or peeled me like an onion. And I love what I found. I call it the old Kenny and the new Kenny. And uh, I'm sure you've heard stories of the old Kenny. Like, I was tough. I mean, I, I was a nightmare. Um, I didn't take any crap from anybody. But that being from New Jersey, that probably didn't help me. Um, but now, I mean, like I said, my, I made a lot of people frown throughout my life for 46 years. When I turned 46, which is only three years ago, I made a decision to make somebody smile every day. And it's, that's my new addiction, so to speak. And it, it works great for me and it works great for the other people. And that's what I'm about now. I mean, golf is great. I love it. I'm outside. I'm enjoying it. But my goal now is to kind of pay it forward and help people and like my story, that article they put in the paper yesterday. I mean, if somebody reads that and, and, and they, they can help themselves, you, you have, I'll show you some of the things I've got from a couple of the amputees that are on pills that have, they sent it to me since I posted that article. And it, it's, it's heartwarming to me. I mean, it, that's why I do it. Well, you've got a smile on your face. And I mean, I, I've, I've seen you on a couple of occasions now. I saw you, I was fortunate to watch you play a little bit in Richmond in Virginia mm -hmm. back in May. Yep. And the thing that I said to my wife when we were going back is uh, this guy always seems to have a smile on his face, which is pretty cool. Why can't you? And then I thought, well, okay, well, let's see what he's like in Australia. But we've, we've been together now for, what, four or five days. Yeah. And you've got a smile on your face all the time. So that's all cool as well. So anyway, congratulations for that. And you definitely are making a difference. And there's no question, and not only yourself, but the guys that are here this week, they're making a real difference because it's actually showing people out in the wider world what is possible. Sure. But not only what is possible, it's also saying, hey, listen, this is just a game. This is just, just, just go play. Let's just go. It doesn't matter what our abilities are, what our right. disabilities are. Let's just go play together. Let's go and have some fun. So, I mean, congratulations for that. And and I, I like the, the fact that you, you've talked about that reflection that you've just said there, that you've had the opportunity to be able to look at yourself from outside. And uh, I guess some of that you didn't like, and I guess some of it you thought, well, yeah, that's okay, but a lot of it, it a lot of it I didn't like and I and and I I never knew that I never knew how hard I was I mean I exposed people's weaknesses to make myself look better and that bothered me because I'm a good guy I mean I, I want to help everybody I want to you know, I was always out you know I was never the 
to bury somebody, you know. But I was doing that, not not realizing that. And once I made that decision and found that out, I mean, I wish I, I couldn't write enough thank yous or, or apologies to people for for telling me what I was or seeing what a nightmare I was. So now every day I get up in the morning and I I make myself a mental list on what to do, what not to do, and it's every day. It's always work in progress. I mean, when I when I made this change at 46, my family said to me, how long is it going to last? And a typical man, you know, I'm going to make a change, and it lasts two weeks, and you go right back to the way you are. It's been three and a half years, almost four years, and I won't ever go back to that old Kenny. He was a lot of fun, but he was also a lot of problems, a lot of nightmares. And the new Kenny is is both. You know, he's, he's, he's got a lot of fun. But he's always happy, and there's a lot to be said for that. And you talk about this trust in, trust in the process, and yeah. so this is a process. It's obviously a work in progress, as you said. Life is a process, right? Yeah. So, is there any of the the the, the learnings that you've got that you feel as though could be really helpful to other people that you can say, look, you know, these are the, the three things, the two things, whatever it is that these are the things that really have made a big difference to me. Well. The things I live by is you got to be patient. I never had patience. You have to be patient, okay? And and you have to understand that you're gonna you're gonna do wrong things in life. And I'm not saying you have a relapse, you take a pill or something like that. And that does happen to some people. It won't happen to me. But don't don't curl up into a ball when that happens. You made a mistake. Life is about making mistakes, but you have to learn from them. And if you learn from them and you can move on from them, that's where your you know the light comes on. And you know, you just you're here to learn. I mean, that's what it is. You're here to learn. And I've learned a lot in my life, especially the last couple of years. I've learned a ton. But you just you have to be patient. And that's when I say trust the process. I mean, if you mess up, the process is get back on your feet and start walking forward again. Those have to be big steps, but little steps. Those little steps turn into big steps, and you can start running. I mean, you know, it's just you have. But you have to be patient. Now, the other word that I wanted to dig into there was you talked about respect. So you talked about respect for others, respect for yourself, and I think respect for the game as well. So I don't know where you want to start on those three. but It's a word that I can say now, and I understand what it means, but back in the day, the old Kenny didn't... I mean, I would play golf, and I would, I'd hit a bad shot or miss a putt, and I'd take a divot out of the green. I, I, that's, that, you don't do that. I mean, but I, again, being always high, at the, you know, I just didn't know what I was doing. Um, but you have to, when I finally got respect for myself, then I got respect for others. It, it's, like a, it's like a domino effect. And now I respect the game. And I don't want to, I don't want to get to sound that in a bad way, but I, I love the game so much now. And I respect it. So when I see somebody do something like that, and I have, I'll grab them. And I, I used to do that. Please don't do that anymore because you made a mistake. Let's fix the problem on the green or whatever. And, and, but people work hard to get these things perfect. You don't want to destroy it because you hit a bad shot. Make the next shot better. Yeah. And that's, that's about respecting yourself, and then you will respect the game. And so what does the game mean to you, Kenny? Oh, it's my life now. It means a lot to me. I mean, I want to be the first, other than Ken Green, who played on tour, I want to be the first MBT to play on the senior tour. I mean, the Champions Tour. And, and I've been told I have the talent to do it, and I understand that, and I work hard at it. And it, I'm, I'm going to give it a shot again next year, but that's, that's what it's about for me. You know, I want to be, be a breakthrough guy. I mean, you know, my, one of my bucket list things was National Championship, and I won my first one, oh, God, it was in 2000, I think, in 11. 
and then I've won the last three. So my game has elevated, you know, but I've put the time in. But that was like one of the biggest things for me to make sure I can win, like be the, the best. You know what I mean? And I've competed against Chad a lot. We both have won a lot. But I mean, it's a good battle, me and him, when we get together. Where do you see Golf for the Disabled going over the next few years? I mean, I love what I see here. And this is like a, a, a big stage for us here. Um, and I think if the U.S. can get involved with this as well, and it's like a domino effect, I mean, I'd love to see it get to its own tour. I would, I, that would be phenomenal. Um, you know, and it, there's enough people to, I think, to, to do it and to have it. It's just how do you, how do you get everyone on the same page? Like the tour that we're playing with here, they're all normal. They're all scratch golfers. They're all play. Disabled is a different animal because there's so many, there's wheelchairs, there's arms, there's, and you have to find an, a happy medium there to get everybody because it's not, it's not easy to get everyone on the same page like that. But, uh, and that's going to be the big, I think that's going to be the biggest hold up or to get it to where it needs to be. I mean, there's a handicap system, but I think if it becomes a money involved, it's like anything else, then people sandbag and you know, it's, it's a fine line you walk there. But I think, uh, I think it's, it's grown leaps and bounds lately. And I, I love what you guys are doing, you know, what Australia's doing. And uh, the U.S. is involved in it now, so that can only help. So I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Tell me about the rankings, because uh, the U.S. came into the rankings at the beginning of this year. Right. I know previously there was a lot of conversation about, oh, it's going to take two, three years to, to get people at the ranking. I know Edgar was saying, you know, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be just a few rounds. And you know, yeah. if, if you see, play well, you're going to go up the ranking. It's going to be pretty it's pretty straightforward. See, I was told it would take two years to, to crack into the top 40. Right. And after my fifth tournament, I was in the top 10. I was right. the first U.S. player to get in the top 10. So, yeah, it depends how, you know, I don't understand it all the way. Um, but, again, if you play good, you, you know, you get in. If you well, play bad, it's like anything else. All you got to yeah. do is play well. I mean, yeah. If you play well, then you go yeah. up the ranking. It's yep. pretty straightforward. And so, uh, but has, has the ranking made a difference, do you think, in the U.S.? Do you think the, the very fact that there is the ranking now and that there's the opportunity for players to be able to progress to the ranking and there will be, obviously, way many more opportunities not only for the gross players but also for the net players and the stable for players i think that um the u.s players now have the attention of what to expect and they see i know a lot of people that want to come play and stuff like this and they know what you have to do to, to play in this stuff so i think the the um yeah, the, the plates there i mean now they just got to come up and you know want to want to get involved in it and play and you know it's it's again, it's it's two, three day events that, you know, you have to grind and you have to play and you're going to have bad holes, but you can't give up. I guess it's like anywhere. I mean, all of these guys that are playing in the the uh, Australian Open, you know, they didn't have the right to go and play in the Australian Open. They had to earn their place to be able to play in the Australian sure. Open. And just because there was an Australian Open and you're an Australian doesn't mean to say you're going to get to play in it. Right. And I guess that's the same with everything. So it'd be exactly the same with the Paralympics. It'd be the same with the World Championships. It'd be the same. And we see it in all the national championships. You know, sure. Just because you're French doesn't mean to say you're going to get to play in the French Open. Right. Uh, so there's a, you know, that's kind of the, the meritocracy, I guess, of, of golf. And it should be like that. I mean, you want to showcase your best players in something like this. You don't want to bring a, you know, a 30 handicap to this and they're going to hold up the field. I don't mean to sound crass in saying that, but you want guys who are going to come play in this thing that can put up some decent numbers. And my biggest, my biggest thing is the tournaments that we play in in the States are 6,200 yards. 
and then you come to something like this, and it's seventy-two hundred. That's where you're going to have because in this in the states, there's four or five players that can go under par all day long at sixty-two hundred yards, which you should. But then you come to something like this, and you know the scores go up into the eighties or something like that, and that's I think that there has to be a something set up where. You know, the courses we're playing at home are 67, 68. So that way you're getting the people that know what to expect when you come to something like this. Because I know I don't – I mean, this is a long course for me. I mean, I'm an old guy now. I'm not a young kid anymore. But, I mean, I don't want to go out and shoot in the 80s here. I mean, I want to go out and showcase my talent and have people say, wow, that guy from the States with the Mohawk, you know, he, he can play. And I want to go out and shoot a number and, and hopefully, you know, draw some attention to – to this away from those good players out there you know what i mean and let them see like these guys playing in this all abilities thing they they can they can do it yeah. a couple of last questions before i before i let you go and do some more practice because i know you you're probably itching to get out there and do a little bit um two points in time that really i think you you've got a unique perspective on one is the time when you get the diagnosis mm-hmm how you dealt with that, and any advice that you give to somebody who gets a similar kind of diagnosis at the same time. The second point is your point of realization when the meds have got to the point where this is no, no longer sustainable and things have got to change. So if you've got a couple of pieces of advice for those two times, for other people that may well find themselves in a similar situation, what advice would you give? No matter what your age, you're, you're going to be, you're going to hit roadblocks in life. You know what I mean? It's how you go, how you get through them. So, you know, I'm a different individual how I attack things mentally. Um, and I'm not saying everyone should do it like I do. I'm a different, I'm a different breed like that. But you have to, you have to get your body in good shape. You have to, you know, expect to go through some battles and come out on the other side of that battle. It's how you come through that battle of that sets up the next one, you know what I mean? And if you take no for an answer and you won't let it beat you, that's the thing. It's a mental game. It's, you have to think positive all day long. Like when I was going through it, my mother used to stand there and be like, the chemo's working, the chemo's working. Then everyone would leave, and I'd be sitting there going, man, the chemo's working. What if it's not working? I'm dying. You know what I mean? That's how your brain, your brain is a negative tool. You have to retrain that brain to be a positive tool. And you can read, and you, you know, I never read books. I read a lot of books now. I do a lot of stuff meditation-wise, and that helps. I mean, it just, mentally, it, it frees you up a little bit. And you need that, because life is hard enough, let alone have something happen like that, or, you know, somebody has a stroke, or somebody has seizures or something. I mean, you have to you have to want to get better, and you have to better yourself. Kenny, it's been great chatting to you. By the way, is there a question that you were expecting me to ask? Or you didn't want me to ask? I answer any question. I don't. There's not a question I don't, I don't shy away from. Okay. I'm Kenny, an open book. Kenny, it's been fascinating chatting to you. It's been great to have, it's great to have you here. I'm looking forward to watching you play over the next few days. You. And I'm looking forward to seeing you continue your career and develop. We can create the opportunities. That's what our goal is. That's what our, our I'm going to say job. We're all volunteers, but right. you know that's what that's what we try and do. Create those opportunities, and we as players appreciate that. All we're trying to do is create the opportunities for you guys then to be able to go and showcase what you do and inspire other people. Thank you, Kenny. Thanks. All right. This was an Edgar Player story, supported by Ping, helping golfers to play their best. For more information about Edgar, 
please visit edgargolf.com. Stay tuned for the next Tough Love and Second Chances podcast. Ping. Play your best. 